you log on to your web page in search of a service or a product for purchase. A little square pops up in the corner of your screen with a chat box. It asks whether it can help you. You type in your question and an answer soon appears. The person chatting with you is likely not a real person, but a chatbot using artificial intelligence that increasingly learns how to interact with customers. This is saving time and money for the company, and maybe it saves you time as well as a customer because you can get the answers you need within seconds. Now imagine that you ask this artificial intelligence how to make the world more sustainable. Will it answer? What is the answer? Is the answer artificial intelligence? Of course, it's not as easy as asking the AI and arriving at a solution. But artificial intelligence is being applied throughout society to a wide array of sustainability-related challenges. So let's ask ourselves the question, what is the role of artificial intelligence in helping to advance sustainable solutions? To answer this question, we must explore the potential of artificial intelligence, as well as any trade-offs associated with energy consumption, ownership of data and code, as well as privacy and other ethical concerns. And as you'll see, this balance is based on our own values, priorities, and understanding of artificial intelligence. Are you ready to ask the question? You are listening to the podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions, broadcasting from the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics at Lund University. This episode is hosted by Sophie Sandine Lampard and Stephen Curtis. And welcome to a new episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Joining you today are Sophie and Stephen. We are postdoc researchers here at the IIIE, the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics, and we're also co-hosts of this podcast. Yes, we are. We release a new podcast episode every month, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We know that sustainability is complex, and many of us want to do the right thing, but sometimes we need help navigating the latest research or our most recent scientific understanding in order to be able to act upon or inform our own behavior. So we intend with every episode to offer tangible and actionable suggestions to advance sustainable solutions. Yeah, and this is really great. So let's kick today's episode off. As you just heard, we are going to talk about artificial intelligence, or more commonly known by the acronym AI. And at least to me, these two letters are both a bit frightening and promising at the same time. While AI helps us a lot to make huge advancements technologically and makes our everyday lives a bit smoother, there are also ethical concerns that come with using these technologies. Stephen, what are your thoughts on AI? Yeah, I certainly understand the potential and the trade-offs. Um, I think like so many things in society, it's so complex, right? To know 
what is the net positive or net negative of any of these technologies that we're promoting for sustainability? Uh, I know, at least for me, it's become quite a conflict as AI raises ethical issues about privacy and bias. And as you know, artificial intelligence is increasingly around us in every aspect of our day-to-day -day lives. You might not think about it or even realize it, but every time you take out your smartphone to do a web search or check your newsfeed on your social media platforms, AI is right there guiding what you see and making your digital interactions possible. Yeah, and AI is not only used by our phones, but it is also powering manufacturing robots and supporting disease mapping or even financial investments. But just as any other tool, AI can be used to do both great things and less great things. And this is what we will dig into a bit more in today's episode. But before we rush into it, I think we need to establish some common ground for all of us to understand more about artificial intelligence. So let's start with a definition and some history before we start looking ahead. Yeah, so this is always my favorite part to start with because I think it gives us an important context um, to understand the here and now. So if we think about the history of AI, right, this begins all the way back in the 1950s and emerged from the field of computer science. Now, the term artificial intelligence was coined by a group of scientists based in the United States already in 1956, and they sought to create machines that could perform tasks without needing detailed instructions or input from humans, thus requiring some sort of autonomous intelligence. And artificial intelligence has advanced since the 1950s as technology and computing power increased. Today, artificial intelligence is understood as the ability of a computer or computer-controlled robot to perform tasks commonly associated with humans. But what does the intelligence part of artificial intelligence refer to? I asked myself this question too. So intelligence refers to the development of systems with the same human characteristics of rational thought processes. So things like the ability to reason, to interpret, to make predictions, or even learning from past experiences. So in essence, AI is about having machines or computers mimicking human intelligence and skills. A somewhat debated way of determining whether an AI is successful at this is what's called the Turing test. Now, if you haven't heard about this test, this sees a human in which they get to have a conversation using a computer. Now, this person sits alone in a room and writes questions on the computer and they receive responses on the screen that are provided either by human or artificial intelligence. Yeah, and the test is then that if the person that is having the conversation cannot figure out who the computer is and who the human is, the AI has passed the test and can be said to master human intelligence and skills in communication, language, interpretation, and so on. Right. So in this test, the goal of artificial intelligence is to fool the human. And do you think that AI has ever passed this test? Well, at this point in early 2022, the answer is still no. No AI has ever yet fooled a human into believing that AI is a human responding. But that does not mean that this is still not in the realm of possibility, especially in a short period of time. 
AI is literally evolving all around us, and we're seeing increasing applications in areas throughout our lives. So for example, we're seeing increasing use of AI in self-driving cars, in the use of chatbots, in smart assistants such as Siri and Alexa. There are now even emotional companion robots that are becoming family members. Another example that was recently featured on a crowdfunding platform was a home robot called Ollie. Ollie is described as a home robot and smart assistant, but this has an evolving personality. In fact, Ollie is designed using a mix of machine learning algorithms to gradually learn and to anticipate the needs of its owners, including matching their own personalities. Oh, an artificial me to me. I'm sure that will bring some interesting opportunities for critical self-reflection. Um, anyhow, we also find that social media platforms use AI to tailor our experiences by learning what we like, what we engage with, what we click on in order to keep us coming back. Also, we can have a look at e-commerce, which has spiked during the pandemic. Here, AI can and is serving many steps of the process, from recommendations on which products to choose to the robots in the warehouses that grab and pack products. And all of this is now possible because scientific and technological advancements have allowed computers to become faster, more powerful, more accessible, and notably less expensive than they were 60 years ago. We are now living in the age of what is called big data, meaning that we have the capacity to collect and store enormous amounts of data from every sector, healthcare, behavior, meteorology, what have you, the list goes on. And then by using supercomputers and AI, we can sort, analyze, and use all of this big data for a range of purposes. And I guess that this is where the controversy with AI becomes critical. AI and big data are outstanding tools for us to use. But as we know, a hammer can be used to build a house, but it can also be used to destroy it. So while some attribute AI the ability to solve our climate crisis, alleviate poverty and disease, others are more careful in their hopes. Now, let's move into AI and its role in sustainability. How can AI support the work for a more sustainable world? Well, there are certainly some good examples to be seen. For example, AI can be used to improve weather forecasting, which then can help renewable energy utilities to better manage the use of solar and wind. AI can also help in predicting energy use in societies, and as such, assisting energy utilities in knowing when there will be a higher or lower demand, in order to not overproduce electricity at any point. This matters, particularly for coal-fired power plants that are large emitters of pollutants and greenhouse gases. And there are also some good examples of AI effectivizing energy demand in large energy-hungry facilities, such as data centers, which are physical facilities hosting the devices and equipment needed to support data access and transfer, such as servers and computing and storage systems. When you store something in the cloud, it's not really in a cloud, but in a data center somewhere. Anyhow, these centers require energy not only for powering the devices as such, but also for cooling the facilities to prevent overheating. Here, AI is used to reduce the energy demand of these data centers. And just to give you a figure on the amount of energy we're talking about here, the International Energy Agency estimated that 1% of the global final electricity demand 
went into powering data centers. So in general, AI can be used to streamline, effectivize, and reduce errors, which can reduce the need for both energy and resources. And this is certainly good for the environment. And as much of our sustainable development today is framed and guided by the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs they're otherwise known as, we thought it'd be interesting to explore how these goals can be affected or impacted by the development and deployment of AI technology. Now, these 17 goals are further divided into 169 targets and 232 indicators. And according to recent research, AI may support or enable 134 of the 169 targets. However, AI may also have negative implications on 59 of those targets. For example, by exacerbating inequalities and increasing bias towards technology-intense nations. This is according to a recent article published in Nature Communications by researcher Vin Uesa and colleagues called The Role of Artificial Intelligence in Achieving the Sustainable Development Goals. And for the SDG targets that are specifically related to the environment, that is 27 targets across three SDGs, 25 targets were found to be able to be supported by AI. That's quite a lot. And looking around, there are many examples of AI supporting environmental protection. One is that AI can help to identify fish from underwater footage to understand how abundant different species are, and thus helping to understand how the ecosystem is doing and how it may be affected by human activities. Another good example of AI supporting environmental issues is that it can help predict the courses of wildfires by drawing on vast amounts of data from previous fires, drawing from meteorological data, wind currents, and so on. Such information is, of course, invaluable for planning deliberate responses, be it for conserving the functions of ecosystems or preventing damage from fires. So if we discuss the potential of AI to support sustainability, we also then have to ask, what are the trade-offs associated with using this technology? We've alluded to the fact that AI is dependent on energy-consuming data centers, so the use of AI technologies must be powered by carbon-neutral energy sources in order to avoid an increased emissions of greenhouse gases. And here we can actually think of AI as an athlete. If you want to win the race, you must practice and spend a lot of energy doing so. And the same goes for AI. In order for any AI to learn about something and become better at performing a task, it must be trained. And in practice, this is carried out by giving the AI a data set and then ask it to sort it or make decisions of some sort about it. By evaluating and validating the results, the AI learns and does the same task better next time. The International Energy Agency estimates that this required training of AI comes with a growing energy demand because these training sessions are very energy hungry. Yeah, I like this analogy to the athlete, uh, Sophie. I mean, if we take this analogy a bit further, right? I mean, every single time the AI needs to train, it also needs input in terms of energy, in terms of nutrition. So let's think about how much energy goes into these different types of, of training. Uh, one case stood out to me in particular, and that was the training of natural language processing, an AI model. Now, natural language processing is a way to help AI become better at communicating in a human-like way. And these models are trained on gigantic data sets. One such training session was run for a total of nine days continuously, and that uses a lot of computing power. Do you know just how much? I know, do tell. 
Uh, well, the energy demand for running this training for nine days was the equivalent of the yearly energy demand of three average U.S. homes. Now, that is a lot of energy if we're thinking about only one task in training AI, and we multiply that at the scale that AI is being trained and deployed throughout our society, then we can understand that that's a massive number. can both support sustainable development and counteract it, particularly if the energy that powers it is not carbon neutral. There are some other concerns with AI as well that we need to consider. For example, AI may put people out of jobs, as their tasks can now be performed by machines. AI can be used to manipulate video and audio into very believable fake scenarios known as deepfakes. And these can be used to mislead people or influence public opinions and elections, to name some examples. And we have also already seen this happening on social media platforms. Some platforms have come under scrutiny recently after it's become evident that they are using AI algorithms that tailor the content that people see in their news feeds, which in essence serves to reinforce people's prejudices. This means that companies that make a profit out of advertisements want their users to stay on the platform consuming content as long as possible. And in order to do so, they may support structures or algorithms that provide provoking, emotional, or polarizing content, as this seems to engage people and makes them stay online longer. Yeah, and there are also some disturbing instances where the power or abilities of AI has been severely overestimated, resulting in discrimination and bias against certain demographic groups. Again, looking at the data that is used to train AI, this may already include biases as it may only cover certain groups of people. It thus becomes discriminatory or unrepresentative for other groups of people, be it women or people of color. Indeed, this is an important issue to talk about and to put on the agenda for those that are developing and using AI in application. And in the end of the day, it's important for all of us to keep this in mind when we ourselves are encountering AI in our everyday lives. But I think it's also important to understand what is the role of researchers and designers of these systems and how do we communicate these concerns to a larger society? We called Sergio Rico, a PhD researcher at the Computer Science Department here at Lund University, to talk a little bit more about this. Hi, Sergio. Thanks for joining us here today. So you are researching the communication gap between industry and academia in software engineering. Can you please tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, my, my research work is about we do a lot of research. It exists a lot of research in, uh, in academia, but how we can communicate this to industry and how we can learn from industry. That is uh, the main topic of, of my research and that have uh, taken me to many different topics in, in software engineering and in the relationship of software engineering research with industry and with society in general. Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, there is a lot of new groundbreaking research conducted that may have profound impacts on our society. So in your view and with your experience, what is the role of researchers as communicators in society? Yeah, that, that is something that I, that I see that we haven't appropriate 
Oh, and, and, and in, in my personal view is that all researchers, we have to play a role as communicators of what we do for the whole society. So there is a lot of research, but the research doesn't illuminate decision makers, and we have to go one or two steps further. Yeah, so in this episode, we're talking about especially AI, but if we zoom into software systems that underpin many of our daily activities, for example, I'm thinking just using our computers or phones, and also then, of course, using AI, these systems will have impacts not only on a certain part of the society, but they may have impacts well beyond as well. In your opinion, what are the implications of software systems on our societies? Do you have any current examples that you could share? If we see, for example, how systems like uh, the systems that we use to commute make decisions, these systems are now making decisions by themselves, but they are designed still by humans. And we as humans, we have to be aware that these systems create new dynamics in society. They are creating new mobility patterns. They create changes in the urban planning and, and so on. They motivate changes in the urban planning. So many of these impacts we are not aware when we are developing or we are, when we are conceiving these systems. And I think that we as researchers who train future practitioners and who as researchers who also develop systems have to be aware that somehow we have a role to play. Somehow we have to one responsibility that we must assume. Do you think that technology development is going faster than our ability to critically reflect upon it? I think that that is somehow natural, but um, it is natural that we create most faster that we reflect on. It's also natural to reflect constantly while the technology development happens. And what, what is important, I, I will say, from our role is to give to the people the tools to reflect constantly. And by that, I mean in the voice that we have in the research communities and in the voice that we have as teachers. So how do we effectively transfer these concerns to society? I will say that what we are doing now, it's one example. If we talk and we try to reach new audiences, and this, that, that's one thing that I like from this podcast, that it's a different format that usually academics don't use too much. We have to try to reach new, new audiences using another means. So th that is one way. I don't think that also that it's only in research where we have all the answers or in where we have all the solutions. I think that we have to talk more, communicate more between us, but communicate a lot with society and try to reach them and try to make synergies with them, develop synergies that, that help to arise these concerns. Yeah, I think that's a good way of summarizing it. Sergio? Thank you very much. That was very nice to uh, be able to chat with you about these issues. Thanks a lot, Sergio, for joining us. Thank you very much.
As Sergio said, we as researchers clearly have an important role in communicating to the society what new technologies and innovations are able to do, and to critically reflect on how our research may impact society in both positive and negative ways. Now, let's hear more about how AI is used in practice and about its role in times of pandemic and its sustainability impact. We are so happy to welcome Sonia Eitz to join us here on the podcast. Sonia is a group leader and associate senior lecturer at the Department of Experimental Medical Science here at the Faculty of Medicine at Lund University. She's also a study director at the Compute Research School dedicated to scientific discovery using computing. And she serves as a steering group member of AI Lund, an open network for research, education, and innovation in artificial intelligence at Lund University. And of course, her research also considers artificial intelligence applications within the biomedical sciences. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I thought we would start by hearing a little bit more about you and your research here at Lund University. Yes. So um, I'm originally a cell biologist, worked for many, many years on cancer cell biology. And then eventually I crossed over to using artificial intelligence uh, for biomedical research as a tool and developed tools for this purpose. So we today focus mostly on um, text mining applications as well as image analysis uh, for biomedical uh, data. So you're using AI in your research, Sonia. How is this actually done in practice? Can you just tell us a bit how, how do you go about using AI? Yeah, so some, one of the things we do, for example, is to try and extract information from uh, articles on PubMed. This is a large uh, database for medical research articles, which has about 33 million articles in it. And what we're trying to do is uh, to train models that can uh, extract uh, a specific type of entities, uh, such as drugs or genes from these texts, and also the connections between them, so that we can connect the pieces of the puzzle that are scattered across this vast body of literature. And then another uh, area of research where we use AI is that we train models for uh, image analysis. So this could be either image classification or um, detecting objects on, on biomedical images. And we are, for example, uh, analyzing very large microscopy data sets uh, with millions of uh, cells on them, as well as uh, lung histology images uh, where we score damage. And um, yeah, and then for the text mining, we also work with um, patient records. So trying to develop tools for extracting information from the free text that is found in, in patient health records. And the data that you're talking about here, I mean, we're talking about millions of different data points. I can't imagine what you did previously before AI, but I'm wondering what are some of the benefits that you see AI in your research and maybe what are some of the things that it cannot do? So the benefits, what you just mentioned, the scale. Uh, so before, of course, uh, we could extract information from text and we could do image analysis, but we couldn't do it on the same scale as we can do now. Uh, much of it was kind of semi-manual and, and then that would take a lot more time. And uh, another aspect is that um, by automating these processes, you not only save time, but you also can increase the reproducibility because it's no longer dependent on the person who is analyzing it to the same extent as before. And uh, um, another advantage is that in many cases, AI actually is more powerful than humans. So it can do tasks that humans are not capable of. So I, as a researcher, cannot read 100,000 articles and keep the connections between them in my head. It's simply impossible. But an AI system could do that. And the same way I could uh, maybe look for 
some characteristics on, on images, but I cannot um, look for, for dozens of characteristics and, and take them into account in the same way as an AI system could. So we get in many cases much better performance than a human researcher could deliver. This sounds a little bit abstract to me. I mean, we're saying that the AI can do this. I don't know if briefly you can say specifically how does AI look at such a huge amount of, of data in such a short period of time? And, and, and what, it, what is it doing when it does this? It, it feels like some inanimate object out there that's acting independently. Can you share a little bit more about how you see AI working in this way? Yeah, so for example, an image, the, we see an image as an image and we don't think about it, how, how we process it, but a computer sees an image as numbers. So it is a grid of pixels and every um, part of the tiny part of the image would be uh, a number that corresponds to the intensity of the color in, in that uh, pixel. And so uh, you have a gigantic mathematical matrix that you put into the computer. And when you train an AI system, a supervised AI system, you put in lots of these images together with a label, which means the correct answer for this classification for the image, for example. And then the computer has lots of interconnected mathematical operations that it can adjust again and again in a training cycle in a way so that the functions, the, the mathematical operations eventually match these classifications in the best way. And this is, done kind of iteratively in feedback loops. So the computer makes a prediction and then it looks, is this correct or not? And if it's not correct, it adjusts the mathematical calculations and then it does another prediction and okay, it's a little bit better than let's adjust more in this way. And so it goes in rounds and rounds. And this is also why you need the large labeled data sets because you basically deliver examples of classification to a computer. And from that, it then kind of learns how to adjust the mathematical operations to make the correct predictions. And But Sonia, I got to ask you also then, just for clarification and for my own uh, understanding here, how does it work in practice? How do you use AI? Can anyone access these supercomputers or how does it work? Actually, as an academic researcher in, in Sweden, everyone can, because we have a national supercomputing, um, basically a network uh, that every academic researcher in Sweden has access to, and many other countries have, have the same types of systems. So when you are a, a researcher as a Swedish university, you can apply with your project for access, and then you simply sit at your laptop or other computer, and you connect to the supercomputer uh, through the internet. And uh, then you basically uh, transport uh, data, say images or text to the supercomputing center uh, in the same way as you would normally transfer data. So you download something from the supercomputer or you also send it there. And uh, then the computing center itself receives the code that you have probably written on your laptop. And uh, so you send the, the code for training these models and then the supercomputing center executes them on the more powerful computers. Alternatively, you can also do some things in, in uh, cloud-based systems uh, so that are provided by big tech companies. Uh, but for most academic researchers in Sweden, uh, they either have their own supercomputing centers or they actually use the national supercomputing facilities. And I think we'll come back to this discussion about supercomputing when we're talking about the role of sustainability or the impact on sustainability. But I wanted to return to this discussion about any drawbacks or limitations that you see with AI within your research? I mean, there's a lot of things that AI cannot do yet. So first of all, it, an AI system is typically a specialist. So if I train an AI system to detect uh, one type of cell objects in microscopy image, it will not be able to detect other types of cell objects, even if they, to our eyes, may look similar. 
Uh, it's also that, for example, if you if you would train an AI model to in a clinical diagnostic setting, so for example, for mammography uh, to classify whether this is a breast tumor in in image or not, it may not work uh, um, on on images from another machine, another X-ray machine, for example. So it's very specialized in many cases, and also the AI systems themselves they don't have any common sense. So they, if you would have a system that is, for example, trained to classify um, a brain tumor versus no brain tumor, you cannot use the same system to um, detect a, a breast tumor. Because even though both are cancer, the kind of this knowledge is not transferable. And also, if you would give a to totally nonsensical image, so for example, you would instead give the system um, an image of a plane, it would still try to classify it as either breast cancer or not. It will not say, okay, this is data that doesn't make any sense in my context at all. So a human would say, this is nothing I have ever seen before. This is strange, kind of. But this answer, this is strange, you wouldn't get from an AI system. Yeah. And, and some of the data that you're using, of course, is you know, sensitive in nature and in, in relation to, to medical data. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about data availability and some of the issues that you have to work with with this type of data? Yeah, actually, I think in medical AI projects, often um, data availability is one of the biggest uh, limitations of the of the research. So first of all, um, sometimes the data sets don't exist or they're very hard to obtain because it's very costly to um, obtain large clinical uh, research data sets. But also, even if the data does exist, as you mentioned, it's severely limited in access due to legitimate privacy concerns with medical data. So that means that even if you have an ethical approval for your research, you don't uh, automatically get the data. And in many cases, the, the regulations are still unclear. So they're hesitant to hand out certain types of data, um, even to researchers that have ethical approval. And then the other thing is about the uh, the, who owns uh, the data, but also the AI models. So if AI models were trained with uh, data from, from Swedish patients, for example, so who owns this data? Is it the hospital? Is it the patients themselves? Uh, if the models are trained on this data, who owns the models? Again, is it the patients who co-own these models because they provided the data? Or is it the hospital who, who generate, helped generate the data? Or is it the researchers who trained the models? And you may think that this is not important in a way, but if you if you want to kind of in the end put actual products into clinics, this these questions need to be solved. Yeah, and I'm thinking also now when we're talking about AI in medicine and the sensitivity of the data there. Now, when we are living in the times of a pandemic, what has been the role of AI and data availability in terms of understanding the pandemic? So in many cases, um, I think more could have been done in the pandemic if we had had access to the data. But due to, and I think these are valid privacy concerns, in many cases, the data wasn't handed out. And that is because the regulations weren't in place and the routines weren't in place. Uh, no one was ready for, for this pandemic, not even on the data science side. Uh, and, and so we, I think we could have, could have seen more because yeah, healthcare providers were hesitant to hand out the data. But at the same time, we did see some, some benefits of AI in this pandemic. It was actually picked up by a Canadian um, health information uh, company, uh, Blue Dot, who, who were the first to warn about the pandemic, even prior to the official um, international health bodies. And uh, then AI has also been playing a little 
part, at least in, in the drug development. So AI can be used for drug repurposing to find the drugs that could be used for other, other purposes, in this case, a new disease like COVID. And one of the um, drugs that was flagged in this way is actually now approved uh, for use in, uh, in patients. And um, yeah, then of course, also many, many public health bodies and other um, authorities operated chatbots to inform citizens. And uh, then, of course, the tech companies themselves, they use also AI to, to identify um, misinformation on their platforms. Uh, so there's many, um, many different uh, uses. Uh, but I think this is, this is something that um, we will see more in the next pandemic than we saw now, because now many things were on the level of a proof of concept, but didn't reach all the way to a real implementation on a large scale. Yeah. And we just hope then that we are able to adequately prepare for any future pandemics based on what we've learned and, and the, the valuable role that AI can provide. But turning uh, the scene just a little bit, I wanted to return to our discussion about sustainability and, and specifically some of your work here at Lund University. I mentioned in the introduction that you're involved in the Lund University open network called AI Lund. I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So AI Lund is... Um... Uh, umbrella organization at Lund University for all the AI related activities and uh, this means it's a network for uh, several hundred researchers here at Lund University who uh, use AI, develop AI or uh, study the impact of AI and we also have uh, members from industry uh, and from public sector and uh, general citizens who are interested in the topic and we organize lots of uh, different events, seminars and workshops uh, related to different AI topics, everything from technical workshops to uh, workshops about um, AI and ethics. And um, yeah, we also um, try to just bring people together um, across fields, across uh, sectors, so uh, that we can facilitate new projects and uh, exchange of ideas. Yeah, and I actually attended one of your uh, workshops in December from ALUN, which you facilitated, Sonia. And there you spoke about uh, the focus of this uh, event was on uh, AI and sustainability. And I was very inspired, I have to say, on all the application areas that were mentioned on this event. Can you please uh, share some of these experiences with uh, our listeners? How can AI be used to support sustainability? So besides um, the medical applications, which of course are also falling under the sustainable development goals, um, we, we have um, many applications that are related to uh, analyzing large scale data sets in sustainability research. So for example, climate researchers may use AI to analyze satellite data. And then you can use AI to track wildlife and monitor vegetation, for example. You can do the same uh, type of text analysis as you do in, uh, in medical research. You can, of course, do also for um, other types of sustainability uh, research. Uh, when you need to compile these big governmental reports and intergovernmental reports on sustainability, the climate researchers need to go through thousands and thousands of articles in many cases. So this the tools can help to condense the information and extract and highlight the important information. But then you also have, um, you could maybe call it real world applications, so not inside research anymore, but you could have, for example, robots that operate in recycling plants uh, and find uh, missorted uh, uh, goods. They can, uh, you can also have uh, AI systems that uh, operate um, the control of energy and heating systems so that they are more uh, demand driven and um, not just on all the time. 
you can use AI for disaster prediction and response planning, which is unfortunately an area we also have to deal with. So for example, you can predict fires uh, or monitor the movement of fires uh, once they have uh, erupted. And then you can also um, use AI as part of, of the many sensors that are used uh, in smart city operations or, or um, for other types of operations, uh, water quality monitoring, these type of things, where the sensors themselves often are um, enhanced with AI by denoising the data that comes in and uh, filling in missing values and so on. And so There's on lots. and so on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's exactly. amazing to think about all the applications that AI can have for sustainability. I mean, yeah. it's really the limitation of our own creativity and innovation, which I think is super cool. But here, I think, is an interesting dichotomy that presents itself. And I think of it as like the impact of AI on sustainability and the impact of AI of sustainability. On is positive, of is is maybe more negative connotation of yeah. sustainability here. And, and here I think I want to return to what I promised we would in this idea of supercomputing, right? These massive computing infrastructures that require a lot of energy in their use, as well as in, in cooling these uh, these supercomputers, but then also the, the rare earth minerals and, and other scarce resources that make up these supercomputing uh, centers. How do you navigate the complex sustainability dichotomy, right, of AI, the, the benefits that it has, but also maybe some of the, the negative impacts that it can facilitate as well? I think this is actually uh, a really important issue that you're raising, and that is that AI in itself does have a negative impact in, in many cases, uh, as you just outlined. And the problem is that we as AI researchers, we are not experts in sustainability. I'm a cell biologist turned AI researcher. I have no um, formal training in uh, uh, life cycle analysis and, and uh, monitoring energy efficiency. So for us, even though we would like um, to use AI in the most sustainable manner, it's often hard um, to, to just, for example, pick which is the supercomputing center that is the most environmentally friendly, for example. I would like to be able to do that, but I, I at the moment I am not able to do that. And I don't know, um, I don't have insight into how all the supercomputing centers are um, sourcing their um, hardware, where it comes from, where it's been transported from, whether it's been produced in uh, using standards that I would agree with, uh, both from an environmental uh, side, but also of course, uh, when we talk treatment of the, of the labor force, and all of these things, it's um, just very transparent to me as an individual researcher. And I'm sure the information is out there and I could uh, dig it up if I really had the time. But the thing is that if you, if you are a full-time researcher in another field, you don't have the time to, to just go and dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this area. So this is really tricky. And I think this is why we who develop AI really need to collaborate with people who are experts in sustainability and who can tell us exactly how to operate our systems in uh, the best way so that we minimize the negative impact of AI. I think this really shows the complexity also of using AI and just it's an incredible tool, uh, but it's not the ultimate solution to anything. And it also makes me think of myself because obviously I store a lot of photos in the cloud and I send emails, you know, thousands of them over a year. And that also has an impact. They are also stored somewhere on a server requiring energy and cooling. 
So maybe the problem is not only AI, it's also our in, entire infrastructure. Yeah, for sure, because uh, like I said, AI is reliant on, on big data and big data needs to store, be stored somewhere. And also, as you say, the, the storage costs. So there's what we call a, a digital footprint that you have. So next to your normal carbon footprint, you also have the, the digital carbon footprint. And, and that should not be neglected, especially since it becomes more and more important in our society, these, these systems. And yeah, I, I'm also glad that you, you mentioned it's AI is not magic. It's not a silver bullet for everything. So AI is a very, very powerful tool for research. And it is a very, very powerful tool for implementing sustainability uh, um, driving solutions. But it is not magic and it cannot solve everything. With AI around us everywhere in many ways, uh, and we've certainly discussed many of the applications here, what do you see as the future for AI? What is your expectation here in the next coming years? I think from um, the development of AI, it is really essential that we work across different areas. So medical researchers collaborating with uh, mathematical researchers, with computer scientists, with ethicists, with legal researchers, with uh, people who are experts in life cycle analysis and, and other parts of sustainability and uh, research. So I think this, this interdisciplinary contacts will be key to really using AI for good. And the other thing is that I think everyone will need a little bit of AI competency to judge how they think these systems should be used and what applications they want to say no to, and also to understand whether something that is promised to them is overhyped or whether that actually could be true. And so I think we, we need to train everyone in AI uh, to some extent. I don't mean that everyone should become a programmer. Not everyone uh, needs to know how to construct a car, but you need to know enough about a car to be able to drive it. And, uh, and I think we need the same kind of competency level for AI. So we should start implementing this uh, in our schools, in our university programs, and in our uh, lifelong learning efforts across all sectors. Yeah, and I think that's really the important message, that there needs to be an awareness that AI is around us, and we need to understand its implications, uh, both positive and negative, in impacting our lives. Uh, Sonia, I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, if our listeners want to learn anything more about you and your research group here at Lund University, how should listeners get in touch with you or find out more? The easiest way would be to go to Lund University's website and then uh, type in my name in the search field. Uh, and every researcher at Lund University has a researcher page, uh, which briefly outlines their activities. And so there you can read more about me or come to an event of ALU. That's brilliant. So we, uh, we're excited to see what uh, happens next, Sonia, in the field of AI. With that, thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, such an interesting conversation to have. We thank Sonia and Sergio for joining us today. Together, we discussed the question, what is the role of artificial intelligence in helping to advance sustainable solutions? And clearly, there is a huge potential if used responsibly. But with great power comes great responsibility. 
Future discussion needs to focus on the trade-offs associated with AI regarding energy consumption, ownership of code and data, as well as privacy and other ethical issues. And I gotta say that this has been a certainly interesting episode to work on for me personally, as the more I dug into AI, I realized just how integrated it is in my everyday life and just how little I knew about it. What are your thoughts, Steven? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see the huge potential of AI to address many of our environmental and social sustainability challenges. Um, but I think most of my friends and colleagues would see me as somewhat of the contrarian, the the person taking a critical perspective. And I think thus far, if we look at the technologies that we've deployed in society that have the same potential, unfortunately, they're often co-opted by entrenched special interests. And I think then it's the role of those working in AI presently, and in particular researchers and, and citizens, to continue to demand that AI is developed in a way that is responsible. As you said, with great power comes great responsibility. So again, I, I want to say that AI is an amazing tool. And it's so interesting to hear from our interviewees, Sonia and, and Sergio, about the ways that it can be used. But we do also need to ensure that it does not build on unrepresentative data sets that are discriminating certain demographic groups. This is, of course, then also related to what Sonia said about data availability. Data covering all demographics needs to be made available if we want to train an inclusive AI. But this also poses risks, as such widespread data access can also infringe on personal integrity or, or privacy, especially when we're talking about healthcare data. Yeah, we still have some way to go with AI, and uh, it will be interesting to see what comes next, for sure. What I take away from today's episode is that AI has an enormous potential to support sustainability, but that it is no silver bullet. We still need collaboration and communication between different sectors and people, just like both Sergio and Sonia have mentioned, if we are to ensure a safe and effective use of AI. And for you, our listeners, perhaps a good takeaway message from the episode and our interviews with Sonia and Sergio is to not be afraid of AI, but engage with it, scrutinize it, be critical, and welcome it. Because whether we like it or not, it's probably here to stay. In case you're interested in learning more about artificial intelligence, I can recommend a few resources that were helpful to me. The first is a free online course called Elements of AI, which seeks to demystify artificial intelligence. You can access this free course at www.elementsofai.com. Another resource that I found helpful is a website called code.org AI. We will also make sure to include these resources in our monthly newsletter. If you haven't already signed up for our monthly newsletter, you can do so by visiting our website at slash podcast. And once again, we want to thank Sonia Eitz and Sergio Rico for taking the time to help us explore AI. Also, a special thanks to our production assistant, Franz Libotson. I would also like to acknowledge the preparatory work that our podcast team member, Catherine Schaap, has done on this episode. And of course, thank you for joining us on another episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. And we have a new episode coming in March. We've already began preparations. And here at the Institute, we have a tradition of celebrating the PhD and licentiate students as they finalize and defend their theses. And in March, you will get to meet Roland Zinkernagel, who has been working to bridge academia and society by applying some of his research in his work at the municipality here in Sweden. 
Oh, that sounds really interesting. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Great. So stay tuned for our next episode in March. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.